Gracious Lord, we thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us in Holy Scripture and in your Son, Jesus, the one who came into our human flesh to bear our sin, to be our Savior, and rose from the dead and has given to us this promise of everlasting life and the resurrection of the body. Lord, bless our uh, study this morning. We pray that you'd open our eyes to understand and appreciate how you have revealed yourself in your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are talking about Gnosticism, which starts with a G, silent G, although in Greek, from which it comes, it actually it is pronounced Gnosticism, is how it might be said, but Gnosticism is how we say it. And how many of you, this is a little bit back now, probably 10, 15 years, remember there was a big stink about the Gospel of Judas. Anybody remember that show of hands? Um, and this uh, was right around similar time with like the Da Vinci Code. And you can see maybe the, the subtitle of it, The Lost Version of Christ's Betrayal. And in the more nefarious versions of this story and this narrative, it wasn't just that it was a lost version, but that the true gospel has been suppressed, that uh, Christians, the, the power brokers within the church, said, no, we don't want, ooh, there's dangerous things in the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas. We learn that Jesus was married and that he was married to Mary and that Mary also was married to... No. Um, <clears throat> all these things had been suppressed and, and you know, kept under wraps by the, the mustache-twirling leaders of the church in the early, you know, years. Uh, Gnosticism forces us to confront this question a little bit, to ask, you know, what is the deal with some of these so-called other Gospels you may have heard of, like Judas, like Thomas, and so forth. Where do they come from? What do they have to do with our faith and the, the Orthodox Christian faith? We'll talk a little bit about that, as well as get into what I think is one of the most interesting and still relevant heresies for our day. But before we do, let's have our little for fun quiz, okay? So just give your knee-jerk answer. Don't shout it out. Just circle it, and we'll come back to it at the end. Number one. The gospel is secret knowledge that only the initiated know. Number two, the struggles of this bodily mortal life are temporary. Number three, though it has fallen, creation is very good. Number four, the goal of salvation is to escape from the body. And number five, the Christian hope includes all creation being made new. All right, we'll come back to it. But let's talk about what is Gnosticism. And it's a complicated story, but let me summarize it in as succinct a way as I can by saying that Gnosticism is the heresy that teaches salvation by secrecy. The heresy that teaches salvation by secrecy. Why is that? Well, let's talk more about Gnosticism. First of all, it's history. I mentioned already it comes uh, from a Greek word, and the Greek word is gnosis, gnosis, which simply means knowledge, which cues us in that there's something about this Gnosticism that has to do with knowledge, in particular with a kind of secret knowledge. This is a heresy that emerges very early even within the, the time in which the parts of the New Testament were written. So roughly around 80 AD, and it had about a 70-year run where it was pretty popular. You know, it was at the top of the heresy bestseller charts. Uh, and you can see this reflected in some place, in particular in the writings of John. 
where without saying uh, Gnosticism by name, and again, it would be kind of anachronistic to do so, uh, it, he's clearly addressing and dealing with those who would believe, well, I'll say what they believe here in just a second, but suffice it to say that it seems to be reflected already in the New Testament. Um, these so-called pseudo-gospels of Thomas and Judas and so forth are almost to a, a one Gnostic gospels. And so we were familiar that these were out there, that these are documents that were um, that existent, if not extant, meaning still remaining out in the world, from the writings of some of these opponents, in particular Irenaeus of Lyons, we'll hear more about him in a minute, Justin Martyr and others. Um, but then there was a big discovery, oh, about 40 years ago, 40, 50 years ago in Nag Hammadi, Nag Hammadi in Egypt, and in this treasure trove of documents that were found, a number of them were these so-called Gnostic Gospels. So that now you can go to the bookstore, if there's still bookstores, you can go to a bookstore and you can find on many bookshelves in the religious section or self-help section, um, a collection of these uh, Gnostic Gospels. One of the big uh, biblical scholars with this, a gal named Elaine Pagels out of Princeton. You can find these, you can find annotated, edited versions of these Gnostic Gospels out there. You can read it. I don't necessarily discourage you from reading it because when you read it, you can't help but start singing. Mm. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Seriously, you read it and you're like, okay, this, no, uh-uh, no. And it's clearly not only a fabrication, but a, a very a twisted version of, of our Lord Jesus. They don't date to as early, so these weren't, the, the Gnostic Gospels themselves were not at the same time. It wasn't like a struggle where, okay, is it going to be John or is it going to be the, the so-called Gospel of Thomas? By the way, there's no um, proof or any sense that these were actually written by Judas or Thomas or so forth. But it was just appending the name of an apostle to give it a little bit more credibility. Um, they're quite late as far as these sort of things go. We're talking third, fourth century. These were not emerging, those actual gospels. Now the teaching, some of those teachings, as I say, were very early, but the, the gospels themselves were not there at the same time as Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, there are connections with both Marcionism and Docetism, a couple of the heresies that we looked at earlier. Anybody remember the big thing with Marcionism? Is the heresy that, tell me something about Marcionism. What did Marcion not want to have anything to do with? The Old Testament. Testament. Okay, good. It's a good thing the test isn't going to be till next week. So. <laughs> uh, and so for reasons that might be apparent, uh, why it would have something to do with Marcionism, Gnosticism also. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. The Gnosticism's like, we don't have anything to do with that. We'll revise scriptures where we need to as well. Similarly, Docetism was the heresy that said that Jesus only appeared, only seemed to be human. He wasn't actually in our human flesh. He was more like a phantasm. He was like a hologram. And uh, here, too, we'll see why there would be some similarities and overlap with Gnosticism. One blessing that came as a result of Gnosticism is that it really helped to spur the formation the validation, the confirmation of a authoritative canon of scripture. So canon, not in the sense of um, but canon in, in the sense C-A-N-O-N means, uh, it's from a Greek word that means ruler, rule, um, that these are the authoritative books of scripture. Now, again, 
there's a, a, a false narrative out there that's promulgated by books like the Da Vinci Code and others that say, oh, this was a result of power plays in the early church. You know, a cabal of bishops said, these are the particular books we want. And these are the ones we're going to suppress. The truth is, could, could not be, that could not be further from the truth. Because the reality is, from the very earliest days of the church, after the ascension of our Lord, it was very clear what were the books, what were the letters that had that... Um, that, that sense of the Spirit's presence working in and through them. So that already by the second century, you have lectionaries, similar to the way that we do, of, you know, structured readings. And here's the books, here's the letters that we're reading from. There was not a lot of controversy about which books to include in the canon. Everybody kind of knew, yeah, we're including these Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the letters of, of Paul. There was some debate over things like, well, like James, Revelation especially Second uh, Peter, Second and Third John, and Hebrews. There was some controversy around them before ultimately they were accepted in as well. But uh, for the vast majority of the New Testament, and certainly the, the parts of the New Testament that we hang our hat on most, it was uncontroversial, uncontroversial what was be, going to be included. At some point, that canon w would have to be verified and codified. It was going to happen, but Gnosticism helped to really push that along. Because the Gnostics are quoting from these things that were like, no, no Christian worth his weight in Saul actually recognizes these texts as authoritative. And so they, they did validate, verify it. All right, so that's some of the history of Gnosticism. What do Gnostics know? I say, okay, it comes from that Greek word for knowledge. So what is it that they know, that they are in the know about? And it was really a story a story in particular about how things came to be, and then some beliefs that flowed from that. So let me break it down for you in four, four parts to this story. Step one, the world is the result of a pre-cosmic disaster. It did not come about by the creation of a good God who in the beginning said, you know, this is my world and it is good, but rather, there was a battle between the demiurges. And the fact that the world exists as it does was kind of an accident. And so in the Gnostic schema, there's no fall in the sense that we talk about how there's the, a fall from grace, good creation, and the entrance of sin into the world. From that Gnostic um, cosmogony is the fancy term for it. it at, in the beginning, it was bad. Okay? This creation, all this stuff is bad. The, and so that's the, the second piece of it. Thus, the physical creation is considered evil. Okay? The fact that there's a, a physical, that there's matter, shouldn't matter. Right? This is bad news. This is just a, a result of this pre-cosmic warfare. Humans, however, this is part three. Humans possess a divine spark which is imprisoned in matter. So every human being has this divine spark within them. And the key, is everything good out there? And children yelling. Um, part four then is that salvation, what is salvation? Salvation is a release from the body. Salvation is a release from the body because you have that divine spark within you. Uh, the goal is to get that spark released from the physical stuff of creation so that then it can be reunited with the, uh, I don't know, the, the demiurge, the pleroma is the word that they would use, Greek word meaning fullness, the fullness. And uh, interestingly also then, according to this story, Judas and Satan, 
maybe not so bad. I mean, this is typical in their writings. First of all, Satan is like, listen, I'm trying to give you the true knowledge. He's the, he's the guy that's in the know. Like, oh, that's pretty good. There would even be um, worship, uh, what would they call it? Like worshiping um, images of serpents and so forth. Um, and then also Judas. What's Judas trying to do? He's trying to expedite Jesus getting out of this shell, out of this husk of the body. He's just trying to do Jesus a solid. Nobody recognizes that. You know, poor Judas, he just gets thrown under the bus. He was really trying to help. Well, these, both of these should be tip-offs that there's something seriously wrong with this teaching. And in fact, it unleashed a fusillade of opposition from early teachers of the church, in particular Irenaeus, about whom more in just a moment. Yeah, Dave. Oh, the physical creations considered evil. Okay. Yep. Can you explain you know, how that flows from one? I didn't quite use it. So the, the creation, or what we would call creation, is more the result of a battle. It was uh, of this fight, this pre-cosmic fight, and the fact that there's matter was not in the cards originally. It came about as a historical accident, so to speak, um, where the, the lesser God kind of prevailed over the, the stronger one in this war, in the, the heavenly places, as it were. And so the fact that there's matter, that's not the way that it was supposed to be. The way it was supposed to be is that everybody would just be pure spirit, pure soul. And so what we've got here in a physical world, a material world, is uh, a second rate sort of thing. Yeah. It's a great question. How do they know? <laughs> it's a great question. That's, that's a secret. Yeah, yeah, there's a part of the, the secret. I'm not sure. I mean, that, yeah, that's a good question. I, 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 good. Other questions about what Gnostics know? Who was actually babbling uh, in the pre cosmic? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, the, the term they would use is these demiurges who are kind of like lesser gods. It's similar in some ways and certainly influenced by Greek, you know, kind of Greek mythology and, and Greek religion where there's sort of like this pantheon, these different gods or lesser gods, not a, a creator god the way that we would envision the creator god, but that these are in some ways spiritual heavenly beings that are duking it out. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a fair question. You know, Hans is asking, could this be referring in some slight way or misguided way of these battles that take place in heaven? Like we see in, in Revelation chapter 12, where St. Michael, whom we, you could think of as a demiurge in the sense that he's an angelic being. He is not a creator. He's part of creation. Fighting with Satan, who likewise a fallen angel. Could be. But that's where it goes, you know, horribly wrong. Like that's not our, our creation story. That's more the story of... of Part of God's repair. Yeah, George. So how does secrecy fit into all this? Sure. So the secret is that now I would say especially this parts three and four. And so Gnostics would say we have an understanding and appreciation for how salvation really happens. Because you have that divine spark, we're seeking to liberate you uh, from, from the body. And so the secrecy uh, comes to that message of what is the nature of salvation. It could be, you know, might include, it's going to talk about the larger narrative, but probably not more than they need to. It could get pretty convoluted. Um, there, and this is interesting with Gnosticism. It's not so much uh, formulated around one particular teacher. 
it was more like this, this loose body of, of teachings. There were some who were more known for promulgating it. But um, in terms of what the gnosis is, it's especially that what, how do you get saved and what is salvation according to this scheme. Now, today, are there still variations and versions of Gnosticism? 100%. I mean, just to give a, a few examples, um, here I found this interesting diagram of the structure of Freemasonry, okay? Where um, the Masons very much are, have this history of being, you know, kind of a secret society. I'm not saying that Masons have our full-blown Gnostics or anything like that, but that there are elements of that, and they're not the only ones either. Interestingly, on the radio a little while ago, I heard a radio ad for the Masons. Anybody heard this? And the tagline for it was, the secret's out. <laughs> but then I go trying to do a Google search. Like, oh, I'm going to look up the Masons website. It doesn't exist. It's not there. Um, it's a secret. It's a secret. Um, <laughs> much of kind of New Age religion has elements of, of Gnosticism. And, I mean, that language of the divine spark and trying to bring that out, that's certainly there. And even something that, that seems a little bit more benign, but a few years ago, probably 10 years ago, there was a huge bestseller buoyed by, um, you know, a vote of confidence recommendation from Oprah, Her Majesty, and uh, <laughs> called The Secret. Anybody remember that one? Yeah. Nobody's going to admit that they bought it and gave it away to everybody for Christmas. Okay. I have not read it, to be fair. I have not read it. But having read enough reviews and gotten the idea of it, like it, it has, again, some of those kind of Gnostic, we love this, right? Who doesn't love a secret? And the idea like, ooh, yes, I, I know it. And it's this, this you know, shrouded knowledge that now I'm going to have and you can't have unless you're one of the initiates. There's something very appealing about that, I think. But when I talk about the case for Gnosticism, it's more than just, oh, we like secrets. One thing that I think we have to say Gnosticism resonates with is it recognizes the difficulty of bodily life, right? Like, I mean, how many of y'all woke up this morning and you're like, ugh? <laughs> like, there is a lot about our experience in the body. I mean, I hear it all the time when making, you know, home visits and so forth where I, probably one of some of the best advice I've been given over and over again, I don't know what to do with it, is pastor, don't age, okay? <laughs> Okay, uh, and Gnosticism recognizes that. I think part of the reason it has legs is because we all sense that. And the scriptures themselves speak in ways that I think can also be read or understood um, to, to be along similar lines. So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, speaking in, in kind of interesting metaphorical or poetic terms, he says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. All right, it's kind of an enigmatic passage, but you can sort of get the gist of it. Paul's comparing our, heaven, our, our present body to what? 
a tent. You say, well, a tent's not a permanent dwelling. Tent is not something that you ultimately want to make a, a home in, right? He said, no, while we're in this tent, we groan. The groaning is characteristic of our life in this body because it's, it's hard. It fails us. It's, we struggle in it. And you hear that and you're like, yes, amen. That's absolutely what it feels like. But already here, Paul's kind of gesturing and hinting that the solution is not to be freed from the body. Did you catch that? See, even in verse 4, he says, While we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. Like, is he talking about winter in northern Michigan? <laughs> what does he mean? Just to hear that phrase, what do you think he's kind of gesturing at toward there, or kind of elusively referring to? Thoughts on that? Jim? Yeah. Improved. Okay, improved. Version 2.0. How would that happen? What would that? Yeah, Esther. New okay, new creation. Resurrection. We'll talk more about this here in, in a moment. But I think already here, he's not saying in some kind of covert way, a Gnostic sort of message. But I think it could be read or understood in that, in that sort of way. Similarly, when Paul talks, and this is partially a, a problem of translation, but um, in Romans 7 and elsewhere, he'll talk about the flesh and how the flesh gives him so much trouble and he has that great chapter in Romans 7 you know the good that I would do I do not do and that which I do not want to do that's what I keep on doing and it all culminates and climaxes in verse 24 wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death okay you hear that and you're like okay so salvation is deliverance from this deathly body true but that doesn't mean then into some immaterial, just super spiritual existence. Okay. And when he talks about the flesh, we've gone over this many times before, but when he talks about the flesh many times, not always, but most of the time, I would say, um, he's referring to what other translations, like the NIV picks up on this, will translate as our sinful nature. So he doesn't mean flesh in the sense like our physical flesh and blood, but more in the sense of like that um, crooked nature that we have as those living on this side of the, of the fall. Okay? But if you read that, particularly for Greeks who are coming out of more of a, a Platonic worldview that is one that's informed by Plato, which is very much involved with the, the Gnosticism, you could get this idea like, okay, so the goal is to escape from the body, get rid of this flesh and blood into just an ethereal, abstract, spiritual existence. It's not what he's saying, but you can kind of see how somebody might get that idea. And there, then there'd be two variations that would flow from this. The more common one was an asceticism, which asceticism is you know, the denying the body to liberate the soul. Okay? So this branch of Gnostics would be very harsh with the body, would be you know, denying, you wouldn't, be, uh, would, wouldn't want to have any kind of, of pleasures, you want to avoid all of that because those are just things of the body. You want to escape it. There was a lesser group, but still out there, that goes in the opposite direction of a licentiousness that says, no, indulge the body, eat, drink, and be merry, because it doesn't matter anyway. It's just a husk, it's just a, a shell that we're going to get rid of, and so who cares how you treat the body? What ultimately matters is the soul. They're a lot more fun. They're a lot more fun, yeah, to have at parties. The ascetics, what a bummer. All right. Would the ascetics be like monks? 
So, so yeah, good question, George. So he said, would this be like monks and so forth? Monks practice asceticism, and I don't want to cast aspersions on the idea of asceticism, where many times we could use a lot more asceticism in our contemporary culture. I'm just going to put it that way, okay? Um, this practice of, of self-denial, and monks certainly would exemplify that. Okay? Uh, but it can go too far, A, and B, it can come from the wrong reasons and, the wrong, and, and toward the wrong ends. So certainly monks and other, I mean, at, at any Christian, when we have things like during Lent, we do fasting and so forth, that's a kind of asceticism. So asceticism as such is not like a, a negative. It's where it becomes um, that, that sense that, okay, if I deny my body enough, then I'm able to make myself just or liberated. And Paul speaks against that, for instance, in Colossians 2 and elsewhere. Other questions about this? Okay, so what's at stake then? What's at stake here? One, the task of mission. Like, what is our goal? Is our goal that as Christians, we have this secret knowledge that now we're letting people in on? Are we basically like, you know, like a, a secret society in our own right? Is creation itself good or is it evil? What is redemption? What has Jesus accomplished and what does it mean to be saved? And then finally, what is our Christian hope of new creation? In what sense could we even talk of that, or are we misguided in that? This is some of what's at stake. Mission, creation, redemption, new creation. All right, let's get into then refuting it. And we've got a number of points, a number of, of directions to go to here. I'm going to go through these a little bit quicker, but stop me where you've got questions along the way. First of all, the most basic point, creation is what? Good. 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 So in a, a, a Gnostic schema, you're just not going to have Genesis 1 and 2. It's just not going to be part of it. So important for us to go back to those foundational texts again and again and again. The whole book of Genesis, but especially the first 10, 11 chapters of Genesis, was so foundational for the people of God in the ancient times and still for us today to recognize that at the beginning, things are good. And turn real quick just to, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, because it's just a fascinating passage that maybe raises questions about some other Christians still in, in our day. Um, Pastor, where's 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul, perhaps encountering some of this, can't say for sure, but he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Interestingly, like Hans was raising before us before. Uh, Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Get this, verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. So here, Paul is speaking against that, I'll call it that Gnostic impulse that wants to denigrate the physical stuff of creation rather than recognizing God made creation good. Now, can it be perverted and turned to evil purposes? Yes, that's what sin does. And that's what Satan wants to do. But to recognize that originally, essentially, it's good. 
And this is, again, it's the echo throughout Genesis 1. God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was good, it was good, it was very good. I teach the confirmation students this. Do you remember this, Ben? Tov Ma'od. All right, good. Ben remembers his Hebrew. Yes, Tov Ma'od. Tov Ma'od. It's very good. Everybody say Tov Ma'od. Yes, it's very good. And then uh, I, I share with them how many years ago when I was still a vicar, um, a kid who like, was one of those kids who sat in the back of the class and you never knew if he was really listening or paying attention. And he raises his hand. I was like, whoa, all right, Ethan, yes, you've got something to say. He's like, he's like now it's Edom Evot. And I was like, come again? What are you saying? It's like, now it's Edom Evot. What are you, what are you saying, Ethan? Edom Evod is Tov Ma'od backwards. <laughs> he said, now we live in a backwards. It's, and I was like, dude, that's actually kind of profound. You know? <laughs> Even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. Good for you. <laughs> Next, Christmas time. It's a great time to be discussing this because the incarnation affirms creation. I mean, this is the great verse that we hear on Christmas Day. John 1.14 the word became flesh. And it's so fascinating. Commentators will point out, John made it a point to say flesh, sarks, not just became a body, not even just became physicality, but he's almost rubbing our noses in it, in a sense. He's like, no, he became flesh, flesh and blood. He became one of us. Now, we can't have any over-spiritualizing of this, Right? that Jesus, the Word of God, came into our very likeness. And that's why Luther's Christmas sermons are so good. I go back to them every year because Luther especially just relished this sense. Uh, he would say, cling to the revealed God. You know, the, the God who comes to us as a little baby. And against anybody who would over-spiritualize it, Luther would talk about baby Jesus pooping and screaming and all of these things. So he he's a real baby. He really came into our, into our flesh. It's a beautiful thing. And so the incarnation mitigates and works against this logic and pattern of Gnosticism. Next, redemption. The shape, the arc of redemption is recapitulation. Ooh, say recapitulation. Recapitulation. There's your $5 term. That might be a $10 term, actually. Uh, I preached on this a few years ago. I guess I was feeling saucy as when we were outside. Um, so you could go back to that. I'm not sure when exactly that was. But uh, recapitulation is a fancy way of saying sum up, sum up. So um, you can see in there, uh, uh, capital, like in there, capitulation. Capital means literally like the head, okay? And so the recapitulation is the summing up. Actually, a recap, it, recap the word recap is short for recapitulation. Okay? It's a summing up. It's a bringing together. Um, biblically, the word especially shows up in this verses from Ephesians. God set forth in Christ the mystery of his will according to his purpose as a plan for the fullness of time to unite, to recapitulate all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, why is this significant? What's it have to do with, with Gnosticism? Well, our guy Irenaeus, who I mentioned, He's the one who especially pushed on this. He, um, his dates are around 130 to 202. His teacher is Polycarp. He's kind of a third-generation Christian. He's within shouting distance still of the believers who walked and talked with our Lord Jesus. 
became the Bishop of Lyons in modern-day France, and he published his five-volume Against Heresies, or I think the literal title of it is Refutation of the Knowledge So-Called, <laughs> because he's speaking especially against the Gnostics. He gestures at some other heresies along the way, too, but he's going to go after this. He famously said that the glory of God is man fully alive. All right. It's a good bumper sticker quote from Irenaeus for you. But to give you a longer quote from his Against Heresies, where he's going to lay out a little bit about this recapitulation. Forgive me, I know it's small words, but if you're interested, I can get the quote to you later. He has, therefore, Jesus, in his work of recapitulation, summed up all things, both waging war against our enemy and crushing him who had, at the beginning, led us away captives in Adam. The enemy would not have been fairly vanquished unless it had been a man born of woman who conquered him. And therefore, does the Lord profess himself to be the son of man, comprising in himself that original man out of whom the woman was fashioned, in order that as our species went down to death through a vanquished man, so we may ascend to life again through a victorious one. And as through a man death received a palm of victory against us, so again by a man we may receive the palm against death. What he's saying is that in Christ, in, in many respects, Jesus is retracing the history of humanity and the history of Israel. He's running it back, but redoing it now, undoing the way that sin had marred creation before. Now, this is most clearly seen in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about Jesus as a second Adam, similarly in Romans chapter 5 where by a man came sin, now also by uh, another man, by a second man, came life. Okay? And by the one man's trespass, the many were, um, were sinners or condemned. Now through the one man's righteous act, the many will be saved. Okay? So there's this um, kind of typology with Jesus as the second Adam that now in himself, I mean, can you think of any other instances from Jesus' life and ministry that have that kind of recapitulatory, to coin a word, um, aspect to it? where it's like, okay, he's doing something similar to what happened in the Old Testament, but he's, he's kind of undoing it. Do any other stories or moments from our Lord's life and ministry jump to mind? Melchizedek. Oh, okay, so Melchizedek, deep cut, nice. So you've got Melchizedek, it, it especially comes up in Hebrews 7, he picks up on that, but Melchizedek was this mysterious king that we learn about in Genesis 14, and that now Jesus is... The, he's an heir of Melchizedek, it says in Psalm 110. Sure. Other things from, yeah. Maybe uh, when he was in the temple as a 12-year-old. Mm. And, the, I mean, he was essentially showing light to the temple. Sure. You know, the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah. Saying, and they were amazed. Yeah, right. So, I mean, so much about Jesus' ministry in and with the temple um, could be seen to have that kind of recapitulation side to it, where now he's here to do the Father's business, right? That's why he says that he came. Yeah. Any other ones come to mind? Oh, oh yeah, Ellen. Um, I'm just thinking of the, the temptation. Sure, yes. He, yep. He yep. That he stood strong. Yeah, very good. So the temptation would be another moment where you have this clear sense of recapitulation where, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden failed to Satan's temptation, but now Jesus has succeeded um, in, our, in our place. Yeah, very good. All right, so it's not just like a, a step-by-step, and it's not a salvation color-by-numbers kind of thing. But over the whole scope of our Lord's ministry, there's this sense in which he is summing up uh, humanity into himself. 
as theologians will say, he's Israel reduced to one and recapitulating what God had originally created, which is showing us that redemption comes in service to God's fallen creation. It's not just moving beyond creation, but it's restoring, it's fixing what was broken, restoring what was lost, so that you had paradise lost, and then you know, John Milton wrote his much less popular follow-up, Paradise Regained, but that's, that's what's happening. That's what's happening through our Lord. All right, then one last thought to share along these lines. The Christian hope is for a resurrected creation, for a resurrection, okay? So that what we're looking forward to is not breaking out of the body and flying up into the skies. What we're looking forward to ultimately is all things being made new. Uh, my favorite passage to go to along these lines is Romans chapter 8, which gives this glorious vision of new creation. Go to Romans 8, 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that, it's, that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that's seen isn't hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul acknowledges and grants that groaning that we experienced, that we talked about before. But then he reframes it by using this analogy of a woman in labor. It's like, yes, there's groaning. Yes, there's a, a pain that's happening right now. But it's not a, a fruitless groaning. It's not for nothing. And the goal is not ultimately to escape, but to bring forth this new creation that's coming. And he uses the, then um, this notion of the redemption of our bodies, of our resurrection. What he's saying is, just as we will be resurrected, so also all creation is going to be renewed. Remember what Jesus says in Revelation 21, at the very end of the scriptures, we get this vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And really what's happening is it's, it's a reunion. You see in Revelation 19, the image that's used is that it's the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom. And why is it a marriage? It's because what happened as a result of sin is that heaven and earth became divorced, if you will. There was then this separation that happened between heaven and earth. What happens when we die is that our bodies and our souls are, are separated. Our souls go to be at peace, in the, at rest, in the presence of the Lord, but our bodies await the resurrection. What happens at the resurrection then is this marriage, this reunion between heaven and earth, between body and spirit. All things join back together. And when it does, we have our Lord sitting on his throne and saying, behold, I make all things new. All right, that's what we're looking forward to. It's a very embodied physical future. 
very much contrary to that Gnostic vision. Is that, I mean, I feel like this is something I try to talk about and teach on a lot, but is that something that um, challenges you or that you feel like uh, you haven't heard that or haven't heard that enough? Or um, is that different than what, how, the ways that you've envisioned that kind of Christian future or, or hope and, in the past that you've looked at? But. Yeah, go ahead, Hans. Talking about the science part. Yeah. Uh, and I've heard different people talk about such things. And it's a, I'm not exactly sure what you're meaning by that. Uh, and uh, it's like, is that like Star Wars where there's. Right. You know, no, right. So, like, yeah, what is the divine spark? And that's, that's a great question, like, to ask for the Gnostics. Like, what is the divine spark? Is it. That rare time when I'm kind of nice, like that's the divine spark, or you know, where does it come from? Yeah, Matt. I thought when it came up before that it was probably coming from Daniel 12. Oh, okay. Um, the shining like stars. Yeah, exactly. That, um, and it also mentions um, those who are wise. So that gets into the hidden knowledge aspect of it, sure. too. Um, sorry, Dave. But, um, yeah, it's clear that in the end times, and there should be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation until that time. Um, let's see. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Mm. And, those who turn, and those who are wise shall turn righteousness like stars forever and ever sure yeah so it could be i mean and people will talk about this in kind of popular terms of like we you have stardust within you i don't know if that's true or what that would even mean i know some of you have posted on your facebook i'm sure but uh (laughs) i think you can you can get that that kind of idea i'm not sure if the gnostics ever quoted specifically from daniel either but i think that can certainly be the the kind of idea and again, there's some truth to this notion, right? Obviously, we have the image of God, all right? Is the image of God a divine spark? Well, no, that's not the way that the, the scriptures talk about it. But yeah, you have, you have all people, whether or not they believe, like God has made all people in his image. And so that's where there's always a, a little grain of truth with the, the way that these heresies often function. Yeah, Judy. When you said sparkle, it brought up a memory from Hallmark the other night. Oh, boy, okay. Where love. Yes. Yeah, okay. Sparkle. That's, yeah. So you've got, the, you've got the love, you've got that, that divine sparkle within you, and so it's just very sweet. I know. And I have, to, I have to always bite my tongue a little bit. Like, these things are nice. Okay, if you watch Hallmark movies. But uh, the theology is almost always terrible in these things. Almost. You do not become, this is something else, this is not just specifically related to Gnosticism, but when you die, you don't become an angel. You don't become an angel. This is just out there in kind of popular theology in a lot of those kind of movies and so forth. Oh, you, you know, she got her angel wings. You don't become an angel. Angels are a separate creature of God. You are awaiting the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Okay? All right. Sorry. I don't need to go. Amen. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Bill, did you have something? interested in the idea if the spark is universal in, yeah. in uh, Gnosticism, 
then Calvinism, conversely, says, sure. well, the spark is selected. Sure. Some do, some don't. Yep. And I, it just, it's interesting that there are two ways of approaching um, God in man. Or, you know, sure, God right. Right. That. One said, no, no, no. It's, it's some do, some don't. Yeah. And we know who it is. Well, no, we don't. Nobody does. Yeah. That, that's the problem with that. Honestly, like that was part of the yeah, problem with yeah, Calvinism. Yeah, you don't know. Um, and I'm, and the Gnostics. I mean, so they're more generous in that respect. Although there were some Gnostics too that would say not everybody has the spark, and we're trying to find those who who genuinely have it to to fan it into flame, as it were. So yeah, there's it's a it's a no right. It's problematic in both in both respects. Well, let me conclude. I've already gone a little bit over over time here. But this final takeaway, salvation comes to us from the God outside, not from the God within. You know, can't really tell these are all caps, I guess, but not a lowercase g, God within kind of idea. And this is where that, those kind of, you know, divine spark sort of schemas always end up going, is that you have the power within you, right, that if you were just good enough and really brought forth that light enough that you would be okay. But the message of the gospel, message of Christianity, is that salvation comes to us. The Latin term they would use is extra nos, outside of us. And that's why it's such good news, is that God has acted on our behalf. He's come to us from outside in Christ and rescued us. He's not just called us to, to drum up some power within, but instead he has come from without to save us. I'll leave you with this quote. I printed it for you in full on the back of your handout from uh, one of my favorite guys, G.K. Chesterton. You can just tell it would be fun to hang out with. (laughs) He says in his book, Orthodoxy, of all conceivable forms of enlightenment, the worst is what these people call the inner light. He's talking on similar lines. Of all horrible religions, the most horrible is the worship of the God within. That Jones shall worship the God within him turns out ultimately to mean that Jones shall worship Jones. (laughs) Let Jones worship the sun or moon, anything rather than the inner light. Let Jones worship cats or crocodiles if he can find any in his street, but not the God within. Christianity came into the world firstly in order to assert with violence that a man had not only to look inwards, but to look outwards, to behold with astonishment and enthusiasm a divine company and a divine captain. The only fun of being a Christian was that a man was not left alone with the inner light, but definitely recognized an outer light, fair as the sun, clear as the moon, terrible as an army with banners. So how not to be a Gnostic? Let me just give you a few ideas. First, one of the cries of the Reformation was ad fontes, which means to the sources. Keep reading your scriptures, including the Old Testament. The reason that people would fall for these heresies is they just don't know their Bible well enough. That continues to be the case. We need to have the word dwell richly within us. That's a good, that'd be a good verse. Uh, we need to, to dwell richly within us. Abide in my word, Jesus says. You'll be my disciples. So continually going back to that. Secondly, honor the body, but don't worship it. You know, because there's, you see that nowadays too. People are worshiping the body. Body is a temple, a place at which we worship God, but it, it itself is not to be worshiped, but we honor it. Thirdly, hold together the first and second articles of the creed. First article, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Second article of redemption, what Jesus has done. He shouldn't be divorced or separated from one another. 
that Jesus who came to save us is the one who acts in service to God's fallen good creation. And then fourthly, maybe a little bit counterintuitively, keep the crash and the crucifix, okay? Keep the crash of the, the nativity scene, okay? Yeah, I mean, many of you, if not all of you, have a nativity scene probably out, right? And in the nativity scene, you've got the baby Jesus. Jesus did not continue to be a baby, but it reminds us how the word became flesh, came as a little one. It's powerful to have that reminder before you. And similarly, the crucifix. There's nothing wrong, of course, with the empty cross too. But there's something powerful about having the, the crucifix, the cross with the body of Jesus on there, remembering that the one who acted on behalf of our salvation, that he really did suffer in his body. Didn't stay there, didn't die. He, I mean, he died, but he didn't stay dead. Uh, but that crucifix also helps, I think, to uh, push against that Gnostic impulse to just over-spiritualize everything, to see how he comes to us in our flesh. So I'll leave you then with your quiz answers, right? So these should be pretty obvious. Number one, the gospel is secret knowledge that only the initiated know. False. No. It's out there. God has made it known. Desires all people to be saved. Secondly, the struggles of this bodily mortal life are temporary. True. Okay? It's not the way that it's always going to be. In our resurrected bodies, you won't have to deal with your knee pain. Number three, Though it has fallen, creation is very good. True. God's good creation. Fourth, the goal of salvation is to escape from the body. Okay, I got to hear you guys be a little more emphatic about that. False. Don't just be, you're not ghosts in the machine. Um, then fifth, the Christian hope includes all creation being made new. That's true. It's true. It's a beautiful thing that we look forward to and long for. We await the coming of our Savior. All right. Thank you guys for being here next week. We will wrap up our studies of heresies. Look forward to seeing you then.